Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. You can picture them streaking down the ice or winding up for the point and firing a big blast past the goalie, delivering a crushing blow back in the defensive zone, hoisting the Stanley Cup high over their heads as they celebrate winning the most prized trophy in sports. Guys like Bobby Orr, Doug Harvey, Paul Coffey, or Dennis Potvin, or Ray Bork, or more recently, Nicholas Lidstrom, Drew Doughty, or even Duncan Keith. But when the conversation turns to the greatest who suited up and played defense in the NHL, one name is very often left out of the conversation. A three-time Norris Trophy winner who many have forgotten. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at his Hall of Fame career. We're talking about the great Pierre Pilat. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you've tuned in as we turn back the clock and reach into the sports history books to talk about the greats and many times forgotten heroes who played the games we love to watch. Today, we're going to hit the ice with a terrific author and member of the Society for International Hockey Research, Waxy Gregor. Now, Waxy, if you remember, was also my guest for a wonderful conversation about the great Red Kelly. Well, today, Waxy will be joining the podcast to talk about, I think, one of the least spoken about and great blue liners of all time, Pierre Pallott. Consider this, Pallott didn't start skating until his teens didn't start playing hockey until a few years after that, and he didn't make his debut with the Chicago Blackhawks until he was 24. Now, that's a lot older than many of today's rookie players. But during a fantastic 14-year career, 13 with Chicago and one, well, let's say very uncomfortable season with the Toronto Maple Leafs, Pierre won three Norris trophies as the NHL's best defenseman. Three times he finished second in Norris voting, and two other times he finished fourth. He was an eight-time All-Star and was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1975. Before he got to the Blackhawks, they had only made the playoffs twice in the previous 10 years. With Palat in the lineup, Chicago missed the playoffs each of his first two years, and then they didn't miss again until after he had been traded. That's 10 straight years in the playoffs with three trips to the finals and one Stanley Cup championship. Simply 
a phenomenal career. Now, before we get into today's show, just a little house cleaning. Please follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. I make daily posts about the podcast. I run a few polls and clue you in on upcoming guests. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. And check out SFH on the web at SportsFH.com. There you can find out more information about our guests. I have links to the books they've written to make it easy for you to order a copy. Links to more information about the forgotten stars I talk about. And you can make comments about the podcast, our guests, or even suggest ideas for the podcast as well. That's sportsfh.com. And as always, please leave Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and I'd love to read your review. Okay, now, Pierre Pilat. He broke into the NHL during the 1955-56 season with Chicago. This, of course, was when the NHL was just a six-team league, so there weren't many roster spots available. And even though Pierre started skating at such an advanced age, he showed an aptitude for hockey that was recognized very quickly. And while he enjoyed playing the game, he still had a love for a different sport that he wanted to play even more, baseball. And I'm going to get into all of that now with the co-author of the book, Heart of the Blackhawks, Waxy Gregor. Waxy, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could stop by again. Well, it's my pleasure. Hey, man, I just want to ask the first question being this. Of all the players who ever skated in the NHL, why write a book about Pierre Pilat? What made his story so interesting to you? Well, you know, at the age that we we got a hold of Pierre, uh, he'd been in, he'd been in contact a couple times. People approached him to write a book, but uh, it's similar to Red Kelly. They weren't ready. He wasn't ready, and he happened to move into our territory. Matter of fact, he lived 15 minutes away from me, and so we contacted Pierre at the time. He'd he'd been inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame, and he was starting to settle into the community. Mm-hmm. And, and Pierre told me one time, he says, you know, it's very difficult for a hockey player to, to gather, gather, garner roots in a certain place because we're, we're always moving. We're, we're going to Chicago to play, but we're going back to Fort Erie where we live or we're going somewhere else for the summer. And he also had a couple of business under operations too. He says, it's very hard to settle down. When they chose the place to live up here, he, he got embedded and he started to, uh, meet a lot of people, got to know a lot of people. So when we approached him, it was actually David Dupuy who approached him. He says, uh, for the Sawchuck book, he approached Pierre Pilat and said, uh, can I interview you uh, on Terry Sawchuck? Mm-hmm. And Pierre said, you come over here and I'll interview you, but you've got to help me carry the coach downstairs. <laughs> so so then that, that's how David and I got to meet Pierre Pilat. And then Pierre started to come out to some of our events. We invited him to. He said, ah, sure, I'll, you know. And uh, we asked him, he said, um, you know, 
would you be interested in doing a, a book? Because uh, David Dupuis had done the, uh, the, the Terry Sawcheck book. And he thought about it. He said, yeah, sure, let's let's go ahead and let's do it. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we, we got underway. Mm, interesting. When you spoke to Pierre and you were doing the research for the book, what did you find what did you find out about Pierre that surprised you the most? Um, well, let me talk to you about a little bit about how he, um, his wife saved a lot of his articles, paper clippings and such and such that uh, he had. And then, of course, we, we backed up some of our own research, etc. But what surprised me the most about Pierre, he is uh, a wise man. Mm-hmm. He uh, would not do anything without thinking about it first, uh, about articulating it. And he was almost similar to a lawyer. He had the answer before you asked the question. He knew. <laughs> he knew. And what's surprising about Pierre is uh, you, you weren't pulling the wool over his eyes. Mm. He's a shrewd in business. He did very well in business. Um, and now, now when you think about it, it's not surprising he became captain of the Blackhawks, right? Right, sure. I mean, the guy was a great player, you know, and a leader. Yeah, and 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 some of his conversations when he surprised me is was he said I was on the ice and all of a sudden it clicked in uh, on certain events through his career. One in Buffalo, another time in Chicago. Certain events clicked into his mind where he could see the timing of things unfolding in front of him. When he started explaining that to us, because I've never heard that from another hockey player, mm-hmm. uh, that that was amazing. You know, it's like he stepped it in another gear, and uh, and he always told me, he says, I always looked at a guy, okay, that guy, um, I'm not rated as high as that guy, but I'm going to be better than that guy, and and he always set little goals like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it was unbelievable how uh, the, the tenacity he had to make himself better. Yeah, and you know, what is the most amazing part about Pierre's story, at least to me, is this. He's a Hall of Famer. He's a Norris Trophy winner. His name is on the Stanley Cup. And yet, as a child, not only did he not play hockey, he didn't even skate. His interest in skating and the game didn't come about until he was in his teens. How unusual is it for someone to excel to the degree that Pierre Pilat did and not take up the game until so late? Well, that's factual, big time, because, and he, he watched a little bit, and then uh, he didn't have power skating, he didn't have an instructional school, he didn't have uh, back in those days, you, you probably didn't have the, the greatest coaching in the world, especially when you first start out. But it was his, his um, just his tenacity and his will. And his favorite sport, he didn't tell you, is baseball. He always right. wanted to be a ball player. Mm-hmm. That was his favorite sport, not hockey. Whereas him and Fergie Jenkins, uh, the great Chicago Cub Hall of Famer, mm-hmm. became uh, uh, the great pitcher, he wanted to be a hockey player. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, and those two guys really became tight, close friends. Uh-huh, uh-huh. What made Pierre so good? Tell us about his game. I mean, again, he didn't start till later. What made him so good? Well, um, 
again, he would ins- inspire to be better than the next guy, but he, he was tenacious and he didn't take any crap. You know, his father had a bit of a boxing background and his father taught him how to box a little bit. And, and, and Pierre's growing up, uh, French and English and where he was in Northern Quebec. Uh, you had a fend for yourself. There was no, uh, uh, you know, my mother's going to take care of me. It's like you had a fend for yourself and he learned how to fend for himself. So he did, he took that same, uh, body of his, which wasn't very big. You know, I mean, we're talking five ten, and they didn't take any crap. Mm-hmm. Just that- kept pursuing. And, and, and you said that, you know, he he really loved baseball, but at what point and and what was the situation that turned him on to skating and to hockey? I, I, I think it's the fact that they moved to Fort Erie and um, he wasn't even really delved in the, the baseball too much there as well. And he just got a liking to play hockey uh, and he watched it and he just went out and, you know, tried out for a junior B team and uh, I could do that. <laughs> and I mean, there's not many people who can say that. I'm, I can do that. I'm just going to go do it. <laughs> and he did it. Yeah. And, and, and not only did he, did he do it? So he's playing junior hockey, but at the same time during the off season, he still went back to baseball. So let me ask you this. How good was he in baseball or what did he lack in baseball or that he didn't like in baseball that he finally said, I'm going to pursue hockey as opposed to baseball? Well, he, he in baseball, he was playing, uh, started with a little bit of fastball, but he ended up playing hardball. And he enjoyed certain positions and he became a pretty good pitcher as well as playing other, other positions as you do in minor baseball. And their team was uh, good enough that they won some Ontario championships in different categories, uh, Bantam, midget, uh, juvenile. And uh, I think he was being looked at as well in, in baseball. Uh, but then he had that accident where he hurt his ankle mm-hmm. at the same time when he was playing hockey. So I think it came down to a decision, but there was more, um, showing towards uh, the guys who were scouting and everything else that were looking at him, there was more interest in hockey than there was in baseball. Mm-hmm. So I think he, you know, he vied that way and he started to get a, a few more options thrown at him towards hockey. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that came down to, well, I guess I'll play hockey. Mm-hmm. And he did. He caught the eye of some hockey scouts and, you know, he, he played junior hockey, and eventually he ended up going to training camp with the Buffalo Bisons when Buffalo was a farm team for Montreal. And in that period, he got to get on the ice with guys like Rocket Richard and Elmer Locke and how much did he learn and understand how much more he needed to improve in order to not only be on the ice with these guys at training camp, but to actually play competitively against them or with them at the highest level of the game? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was a student. 
And, and you know, we we talk about in the book about the first time when he was playing junior and he went to Toronto and he watched uh, the hockey game and he was paying certain attention to certain guys, and mostly defense. And, of course, he seen Bill Barocco, how Bill Barocco was, was throwing a hip around and taking guys out. And Pierre studied that move. And I know he went back and he says, I went back and I worked on that move you cannot believe how much time I spent on that because it didn't happen overnight. Him the, Barilco, be to, the Barilco hip check. Yeah, he called it the Barilco bump. And he said, I spent time training. Just, And that's what he did throughout his career. He would follow certain guys and watch certain players and try to pick up and steal the good qualities they had. One of the guys he watched a lot was Doug Harvey. Mm-hmm. He watched Doug Harvey control the game. He kept his eye on Doug. And Doug was older, more prominent player and such. And, uh, of course, you, you learn uh, you learn in the scrimmage, too, when you're playing against guys like The Rock and that. And they put, they put a couple moves on you. And you better, you better make an adjustment to counteract those guys the next time they come in because you won't be around very long if you don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, while we're on the topic of, of junior hockey and, and the minor leagues, one of the areas you discussed in the book was minor league hockey, you know, due to Pierre playing there. And, you know, with the Buffalo Bisons. Now, I'm curious, and maybe I'm misunderstanding this or the game has changed. When Pierre was working his way through juniors and and then the AHL, Buffalo, if I understand correctly, was an affiliate of the Montreal Canadiens. Then, through a series of moves with ownership, they became an independent. And then they worked out a deal to become an affiliate of the Blackhawks. In today's game, affiliates have working agreements with their parent clubs. And most of the players, I think, on the affiliate team are under contract to the parent club. But from the way I read your book, that's not the way it worked, was it? I mean, after all, the the Bison players went from possible careers with Montreal to possible careers with Chicago. How did all that work? Well, we all have to go back to the way when they started signing the A form, the B form, and the C form. And once you signed those certain forms, you became the property of. And, and uh, you know, you'd sign the C form for $100 to the New York Rangers. Well, you and New York Ranger property, and they would tell you where, where you were going. So could he have um, been property of the Rangers at that time and played for Buffalo? He, he, no, he, I'm just using that as an example. Oh, okay, he, wasn't, okay. he wasn't property of the Rangers, you know. He, he became uh, – he signed. He didn't, he didn't sign a C form. He actually – he just played hockey for, for, uh, when Pillow signed him, basically signed him uh, to play – um, I shouldn't say that he did sign a C form. He, he became property of, uh, with Rudy Pillis mm-hmm. out of St. Catherine teepees. And then St. Catherine's once you're finished your junior age, they had to go somewhere if you weren't qualified to play in the NHL. So he did go to Buffalo, but Buffalo, as you say, wasn't, wasn't, uh, an affiliate to Chicago at that point in time. It was a split farm system. It was split between Chicago, I believe in Montreal. Mm. where they had both teams were sending guys down there. Now, Montreal and Toronto were both the leaders uh, with um, affiliate associations where they had teams all over the place. The other four teams were just starting this process to improve their farm system. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Toronto was Toronto was right on the bit with Frank Selke Sr. He started that farm system in Toronto, and then when he went to Montreal, they really started to build up the farm system using a lot of the French Canadian boys, etc. Uh, and the other teams were picking it up. Mm-hmm. You have to remember that you know the four American teams were quite often in the basement, except for Detroit. Detroit was a powerhouse um, from '48 right on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. So- um, but uh, you're, you know, you're right by saying that uh, finally Chicago purchased Buffalo, and they were affiliate farm system to the Chicago Blackhawks. Okay. So all their guys, all their guys coming up that were any good, were going to Buffalo eventually, and then on to Chicago. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So now, after a couple of years, three years or so with Buffalo, Pierre, I mean his his trajectory to get to the NHL is crazy uh, considering when he actually started skating and playing the game. So it wasn't too long before he was graduating, we'll say, from Buffalo, getting his chance. He gets called up to the Blackhawks to play for Tommy Ivan's Blackhawks. Now, that first game was quite in it was it was really interesting. Even even his first shift when Pierre was called up, he didn't think he would play. So he tells his father not to attend the game. He thought, oh, well, I'll just be sitting the bench the whole time. <laughs> That's not what happened. Tell us about his oh. first shift, his first game, and then how bad he felt that he told his father not to attend. Oh, he was in big doo-doo for that one. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the coach, the coach then was Dick Irvin Senior. Oh, right, Dick Irvin. And and then Dick Irvin, as we know, had got uh, turfed from Montreal, and uh, was a very senior coach. Had uh, been around the NHL for a long time. So under the assumption, Pierre says, you know, I'm I'm going to play with the big boys, and Dick's Dick's been around for a long time. I mean, Pierre for sure said, I'm I'm not I might get a shift, maybe two. When he told him he was in the starting lineup. Yeah, he couldn't believe it. He, he, he uh, <laughs> his jaw dropped in the dressing room, and then he knew after the game that he was in big trouble because he had told his father, "Now don't bother coming to the game." And his mother would have came as well. Oh, don't bother coming to the game. I'm not going to get any ice time. Didn't they offer to drive him there or something too? They offered to drive him there. Everything. Yeah, and and uh, he was in deep trouble. His father was really really upset with him. <laughs> Didn't happen, didn't happen again. Well, why was he recalled? Why was he called up? What was it about his game that they, you know, that Dick saw in his game? And what was it, you know, how, why was he needed on the big team? They had an injury uh, and they were, they were kind of short. And, uh, you know, the availability of, you know, who is available to get called up. And at the time he was, you know, probably the best or as good as the defenseman they had in the farm system. Um, they had, they had seen, he had some potential and they said, you know what? Uh, we'll give him a shot. Call him up. We need another guy up here. I mean, they only went with four defense normally five mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that first game he played like one of the four defense Right, but his first shift, if I understand correctly, it wasn't exactly the greatest shift. Uh, you know, he was probably no, starstruck. He, 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 he was he he was embarrassed. Ah, he was nervous as hell. 
I mean, your first shift in the NHL, you're starting, and uh, a veteran like Todd Sloan, uh, give him the old dippity do, and uh, Pierre never forgot that. I can tell you. And, <laughs> and one of those things that never, is never going to happen to me again. <laughs> and it's funny, you know, it's funny how uh, Dick Irvin Senior never said anything to him on the bench. And he made and him I guess get they out didn't there have for the ammunition. You know, they didn't have seven defense on the bench to say, "Okay, buddy, you're riding it." Right. They needed him out there for what you had. Yeah, and he, they 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 needed him out there for his second shift. He's get get back out there, and that was surprising to him as well that he was given a second shift. Well, in the NHL as well, they didn't have the same number of guys on the bench as they do today. Mm-hmm. There was only a certain number of guys you could have on the bench, and mm-hmm. it was a lot less than it is today. Mm-hmm. You know, usually went with uh, three three lines and five D, and it didn't even have a backup goalie. Right. Yeah. You know. You, you you address that a few times in your book. Yeah. Hey, um so he gets called up but then he's sent back down. I guess like for for the next half season or year or so, it was sort of up and down for him. When did he finally make the impression to stick? Oh, that's a good question too because I think uh I don't think it was at the beginning of the year. I think it was uh partway through the year he got called up to stay. Uh, right, I yeah, I, I have I have that his his first season was fifty five, fifty six, and he played twenty games, and then he made the team, if I understand correctly, in fifty six, fifty seven. So he must have yeah, made a heck correct. of an impression uh, in in training camp the following you know the following season. Yeah, he was he was ready. Uh, they seen that that you know he he had his experiment with the twenty games he played. And uh, he was ready to come up. Now, Absolutely. Now, the Blackhawks at that time, they were not that good a team. I mean, his, his yeah, I mean, they just, they didn't qualify for the playoffs until he was up on the team for a couple of years. So tell us about the Blackhawks when Pierre first joined the team and just how bad they were. They they were they were sweller cellar dwellers. I mean, they they had uh, they made some trades, but they was basically tinkering. Uh, Detroit because the Norris's were brothers threw them a bone now and then. The moves didn't really occur till um, uh, uh, what's his name, Glenn Hall, mm-hmm. and Ted Lindsay got themselves in the hot water in Detroit, and that's when they got moved to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then Chicago, a young guy by the name of Bobby Hull was coming <laughs> in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was only 18 years old. So we started to get a few pieces put together. Uh, and uh, Rudy, Rudy Pillows was uh, still coaching. Um, his tenure was going to deplete in a few years from now. But uh, they started to pick up a few guys from their farm system. Uh, they made a few few trades that did work out. But... None of their trades were, uh, they were putting bodies in, but, uh, you know, they weren't really uh, nothing major as far as trades go. But they were signing the odd guy, uh, cast-offs that weren't too bad. Like Al Arbor signed, he got out of Detroit, and he came into Chicago as a fifth defenseman, which was, uh, he didn't mind that because he said, you know, Detroit was hard to get any ice time, and Chicago looked like they were starting to improve their team with the number of players they had. And uh, you could see some of the guys in their minor system 
that were going to play hockey. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it took a while to, I mean, they just have some retreads, but, uh, you know, Eddie Litzenberger came in, they made a trade for uh, Eric Nestorinko to Toronto and, uh, um, a few of the guys, uh, Stan Mikita still wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, well, well, the other uh, thing I true, think too, true. I think the other thing too is that they finally got rid of Dick Irvin, and one of the moves that they made to help improve the team was to bring in Rudy Pillis as coach. And you've mentioned him a couple of times. Tell us a little bit about Rudy and what kind of coach he was, and what role Pierre had in bringing him to Chicago. Well, Rudy, Rudy knew all these guys from uh, the, the St. Catherine Teepees and, and uh, part of the affiliation with the Buffalo Bison, so he was quite familiar with a lot of them, and the, and the guys knew him. They, they, they liked Rudy, but Rudy was a, a, a rah-rah guy is more opposed to, a, you know, I call it a strategic coach, as you would see today. Um, but he was a likable guy, and uh, they liked him. But uh, And his style of play was... Uh, he didn't get on their backs too much, but um, his style of play was uh, depending on the players they had, and they became an offensive team. Uh, probably cost them a few Stanley Cups because they didn't play defensive enough. But, uh, you know, he was familiar with a lot of the guys they were bringing in, so that kind of worked out okay. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, they're, they're going to, you know, they, they changed their manager, eh? Right, right. Uh, so that, that helped as well. Because uh, they had a good re- relationship with Tommy, Tommy Ivan. Right, and then and then, like you said, they started to bring up some uh, some other young guys, and I want to talk about two of them in particular. The first being Moose Vasco. He and Pierre were, you know, they were paired together on defense. Tell us about that pairing. How well the two of them got along on and off the ice. And just how how they work together. Here you have Pierre, the offensive defenseman, and Moose was more like the defensive defenseman. But it was this it, this great pairing, and the fact that both of them were so young, so they could grow together. Yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, I mean, Moose came in. Uh, I think it was uh, two years after Pierre. Um, and they put them together. Pierre was a smaller guy, where Moose was a bigger guy. So uh, Moose was a stay-home defenseman. Pierre would take the puck. He would move it with Bobby, and they would go. Uh, and Moose would always have his back. They became really tight. Of course, they roomed together. Um, their families knew each other well. I mean, Pierre talks about some great stories in the book and about poor Moose, you know. Um, they were really they really became close friends. Um you know, it's in hockey uh, when a lot of guys get moved around, um, get traded here and there. You and today, coaches move players around; they don't stay with the same partner. But Pierre and Moose were always together. They they were on the same team, the same lineup all the time. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Now, you know, inseparable. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, they and, were roommates. You know, they on learned the road. each yeah. other's. They learned how to play with each other so much that it was, you know, second nature. You know. Moose would know when Pierre was going, and Pierre knew that Moose was always back there. Um, yeah, so they worked great. Mm-hmm. Now, and, you know, they had, and it was funny that Pierre will tell stories that 
they'd go back to the apartment and there'd be 24 beers in the case. Moose would drink 22 and Pierre would drink two. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then Pierre would beat him at crib all the time. <laughs> well, Moose, Moose came in, uh, yeah, uh, Pierre's first full season, 56, 57. That's when Moose came in and he was, he was the age of 21 and Pierre, you know, his rookie season, he was 24, but Chicago was starting to piece this thing together. Pierre's third season, his second full season, the Blackhawks call up another key component to the team that they would become Bobby Hall. And during the time that Hall and Pierre played on the Blackhawks together, man, those two got along. They could read each other. And I just find it really interesting that you have this defenseman and this, you know, one of the greatest goal scorers of all time in Bobby Hull, how well they played together from day one. Talk about the relationship between Bobby Hull and Pierre Pallott. Well, you know, that that relationship really took off when, uh, of course, Bobby's a young guy when he first came in, and they, they got um, asked to go play in Europe. Um, the Rangers were going to play an exhibition uh, round against the Boston Bruins in several cities, but not all the Rangers could go. Uh, Andy Baskin such they had they had business commitments, so they couldn't make it. So Musk Patrick uh, he needed some he needed some players to go over. So he asked Bobby, and he asked Eddie Shack, and he asked uh, um, uh, Eddie was Eddie was with the Rangers at the time, but he asked Bobby and Pierre to go, and. Pierre and Bobby really, because they're two Blackhawks, they really really hit it off together. And Bobby started playing on that big ice surface in Europe. And he's, and Pierre said to me, he says, that's when Bobby really hit it off. He, he, he had that big ice surface and he had room to move. And uh, he, he played outstanding. And Pierre was an offensive type of defenseman. Uh, he was learning more and more play defense. And so he, he learned give and go with Bobby and they worked that steadily. Of course, uh, they became pretty tight friends, um, off the ice as well. Um, eventually they'd be, they'd get into business together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, uh, it's, it's funny how the, the, they just clicked each other, clicked with each other. And, uh, Pierre would say, and you know, Pierre didn't, Pierre didn't handle the puck or give the puck, Given gold like that was Stan Makita. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He, he not not even not even near as much as he did with Bobby. Mm-hmm. And him and Bobby had a thing going, and Bobby knew where he was, and and you know, um, it was unbelievable how they worked together. And you know, when we did this book, I had an interview with Bobby. Well, Pierre come over with us. We were with Bobby for well six hours, uh, you know, talking about. A lot of the stuff didn't even hit the book, but uh, <laughs> you could tell just just the relationship between two of the two of them, how close they were, you know, mm-hmm. and at, at that time back mm-hmm. in the Black Hawk day. I think a lot of people would find it very interesting to know that Pierre Pilat and Bobby Hull, at least for a tiny bit of time, 
actually wore the sweater of the New York Rangers. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Not too many people know that. Hey, so so back to Pierre. You know, and you said this earlier, it sounds like he was a pretty reasonable guy, someone who was easy to get along with. What was his personality like, and why was he so easy to get along with? Well, I think his background as a French-Canadian didn't have a whole lot, didn't come from, you know, you know, you had to work very hard uh, to earn a dollar. You know, your father worked uh, for the railway, didn't make a lot of money. You know, uh, money was precious. Um, so you worked hard, uh, you know, to achieve uh, those things. And Pierre was a likable guy. Um, he got along with a lot of guys. Of course, there's, there's some guys you didn't get along with uh, if you played against them. Mm -hmm. But, uh, um, you know, um, on, on the whole, though, he, he didn't hate people, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but he got along with his guys. And he knew that, that it was a team game. You had to play as a team. You had to get along. And the story he told me is when Dolly Saint Laurent came in from Montreal and Ted Lindsay. Ted Lindsay was the same way. He said those guys made sure that the team stuck together off the ice, which was a very key component. Now, when Pierre eventually becomes captain, he knows how important that is. Off the ice. Mm -hmm. Don't go uh, off on your own. Right. Especially when you're out of town. Right. And you tell a story late in the book about how important it was to be a team, to do things together as a team, to participate with everybody as a team off the ice. And they had a young Dave Dryden on the team and they would go out for some beers or and dinner and Dave would and they'd split the bill and Dave would disappear talk about that that was pretty amusing that was a good story because uh, uh that was when pierre was a captain and uh and they were they were in montreal and they said well we're going to go out because there was you know there wasn't just pierre observing some of the stuff some of the guys would go to pierre and hey pierre you you see you hit the what's going on with this guy and uh dave Dryden was just basically coming in as a backup goalie anyway so but but he was with the team and they noticed that he was He'd have his one beer, one sandwich, call the waitress over, pay the bill, and and leave the restaurant. Which, which were what they were trying to say is, uh, you know, we, we want you here as part of the camaraderie. It's a team where we're out of town, and we want the team to, you know, get together and uh, bond. Uh, so that's when the, when Pierre said, "Okay, boys, we're going to this restaurant, and we're going to call. I'm having a team meeting." And the rule was when you have a team meeting, everybody has to show, everybody has to stay. So just as Ken Dryden, not Ken Dryden, but as Dave Dryden was ready to leave, uh, Pierre says, well, we're going to have a meeting. And uh, so he couldn't leave. And then they all started eating and drinking and hooping it up. And then when the bill came, it came to $35 each because they were splitting the bill amongst all the players. And all he had had was a beer and a sandwich. So he, he was pretty perturbed that he had to pay a lot more than his share. <laughs> they're, they're briefs keep trying to say, uh, you know, we're a team. Right. We have to right. bond. Um, but, but Dolly St. Laurent was one of the first guys that came to Montreal after winning all those Stanley Cups. And he came to Chicago, which he really didn't want to come to Chicago because he was with the great Montreal mm -hmm. Canadiens. Mm -hmm. But he was the guy that would host many parties 
just to keep the boys and the wives mm-hmm. together, close bonding. Mm-hmm. He said, that's the way we have to do it. And Ted Lindsay was a strong component of that when he came, but Ted was a little older sure. when he got there. Sure. On the ice, you know, we're, we're talking about how reasonable and likable a guy Pierre was. On the ice, though, he had somewhat of a mean streak, didn't he? I mean, he was pretty damn rough and tough when he had when he had to be, and he didn't take crap from anyone. No, he didn't get all those penalty minutes. By matter of fact, he he often said, "There's no way I'm ever going to win the Lady Bing Trophy. That's not one trophy I want to win." <laughs> he was no intention of ever winning the Lady Lady Bing Trophy, and uh, you're you're absolutely right. Um, and his early days, he was in the penalty box a lot. Maybe compensating for the for the lack of skill at the time, but but he he didn't he, he knew that he had to show up or uh, he'd be gone because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he wasn't a big man, and that just goes to his character. Right. Um, but yeah, he had a main streak, and again, he knew a little bit of how to box, and he didn't take any crap. And uh, no, and no he question. was able to stand his ground. Yeah, he led he led the league in penalty minutes one season, but. Um, you know, he had 169 in 6061. Um, but he was usually right at the top of the list of the league and definitely at the top of the list of penalty minutes uh, for the Blackhawks. Hey, you know, one uh, another point I'd like to discuss here, Waxy, is how the game of hockey was different. Um, off the ice for the players as well in that they had to fend for themselves when it came to signing contracts. You tell some fun or interesting stories about contract negotiations with Tommy Ivan. What was negotiating a contract like? Well, first of all, there's no such thing as an agent. Well, they didn't have an agent until the Eagleson showed up in in, uh, the late 60s. But they didn't have uh, um, any agents, and they were told explicitly that um, you shut your mouth. Once you get a deal, you're going to keep it quiet. And that, that was throughout the league. The other thing is they never got a copy of their contracts. Hmm. When, when Pierre had his contract signed, they would, they, would, they would sign the contract, and they'd say, okay, uh, if, if any player uh, – wanted to see his contract, they'd have to go into the office, ask the secretary to see the contract, and she would only give them a limited time to look at it. <laughs> oh, you weren't allowed to copy it, write it down or anything like that. You're, you're, you never got a copy, and you're, you, you got a quick glance at it. And that was put away. And there's different stories of how each player was treated differently. Uh, even uh, Tommy Ivan had a, a, a phony button underneath his desk for the phone to ring. And he, <laughs> and he would use that on certain players. The player would be there, and all of a sudden the phone wrinkle, you know, and he'd, he'd make like he was talking on a phone, uh, making a phony trade up or something else. These are all tactics that they were using. And, and uh, he would have a blank book trading. of some sort. He'd look in the book as if he was looking at numbers or analytics or something. As as he's ne- Al Arbor, Al Arbor, Al Arbor told me that story. He told me that story when Al Arbor was living down in Long Beach, down in Florida. I remember I told you I was down there for two winters. Well, I went and visited Al Arbor at the mm-hmm. time and just to talk about those days. And he said, that's when he, that's when he was 
he left the room and he was shuffling his papers around and he looked at the papers and there wasn't a, wasn't a, any writing on any of the papers they're all blank <laughs> it was just just the technique that every every guy was treated differently and of course they're lined up outside and uh, don't say anything when you leave i mean this was done as well jack jack adams mm-hmm. was famous for uh, mm-hmm. uh you know keeping the pay scale down he didn't know what they're making i mean gordy howe didn't find out what uh, what was going on until bobby bond told him he says you you're keeping the league price down uh, I'm making more money than you. <laughs> and, and this was in, you know, the late sixties. And, and were they always one year contracts? Yeah. One year, uh, Pierre finally started to sign a two year contract, uh, a little later mm-hmm. on. Uh, but basically they were one year then they got to two year. And then, uh, I, I think it was the odd rare, uh, contract that might've gone to five years, but not very mm-hmm. often. Bellable had a five-year contract, I think, that paid him uh, X number of dollars per mm-hmm. year. And it was he wasn't a low mm-hmm. pay compared to the other guys. You know, all this is going on during the time of the original six. And, you know, for our listeners, that's Montreal, Toronto, Boston, New York, Detroit, and Chicago. Is it fair to say that during this time, Chicago was the most troubled of all the franchises? I mean— they weren't exactly killing it on the ice, and they weren't killing it in the stands either. I mean, the fans weren't really showing up to the games. So what was it like for the players when they would play a game at Chicago Stadium and there's four and 5,000 people in the stands, and what did the league do to keep this team afloat? Well, that's what happened, and that's why uh, places like Detroit and that ended up sending the players because they were pitiful. I mean, Pierre, Pierre's wife used to talk about it. It was awful. You'd go to the game, and, and the cameras would flash uh, to a section where there were some people to show like there was a crowd there, which in essence there wasn't. There wasn't. I think most of the noise came from the Barton organ. Um, but, you know, and the ice wasn't always the best in Chicago. Um, but you know, the, the Norris's were trying to make a dollar and they would make it any which way they could, but they certainly weren't making it on their hockey team because they weren't getting great crowds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the neighborhood, maybe of where the madhouse was uh, located, wasn't the best location either. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there was all kinds of, uh, I think, executive decisions made with the Hawks that, that kept them down. I mean, the Norris's were out to make money and it didn't matter what it was from. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mention how the camera would swing to a section that had fans in it to make it look like they were fans in the stands. I think it was in your book that I read when CBS finally started to broadcast games and they come to Chicago, they had every fan in the stands sit on one side of the ice. So when the camera would show a fan in the stands, it was, it looked like it was packed. Meanwhile, the side that, yeah. that the camera was on, there was nobody sitting there. That's correct. And it wasn't until, um, Bobby got there and, uh, and Glenn Hall and, uh, Ted Lindsay, and they started bringing in some players and the, the team started to show success and then the crowd started to, started to show mm-hmm. up. And when they finally started making the playoffs year after year, that you know the crowds became pretty mm-hmm. good. But uh, the Blackhawks were one of the, the last teams to to have TV coverage, and uh, 
you know, they, they were, they were really balking the system. Um, they thought the TV was going to take away from the paid attendance, which in essence it didn't, but, uh, that's mm-hmm. the way it is. Now, now when you look at the history of the Blackhawks, they, they lost in the semifinals or, you know, the first round of the playoffs in 1945. They didn't qualify in any of the next seven seasons. Then in 52-53, and this is still before Pierre gets there, they lost in the semifinals again. And they didn't make the playoffs in 53-54, and that was Pierre's first year. They didn't make it his second year. They didn't make it his third year. But finally, in 58-59, they make the playoffs. And they were something else. So before we get to the playoffs, and you sort of mentioned this just a moment ago, how did the rest of the league help the Blackhawks as far as putting talent on the Blackhawks roster? Well, when when Ted Lindsay is, you know, tried to start the players union, um and he he got he got turfed from uh, he kicked out of Detroit. Uh, Glenn Howe uh, had a disagreement with uh, Jack Adams because he didn't take any crap from Jack, and he got turfed. And then there was uh, Jimmy Thompson that came from Toronto. So all the teams, except Montreal, all the teams that had uh, representatives uh, vying for the union, they all got displaced because they were going to get broken. The union wasn't going to get started. They were going to move guys around. Uh, The only team that didn't move anybody was Montreal because – Doug Harvey at the time was the vice president of so-called with Ted Lindsay and, and Frank Selke said, I, I can't move Doug Harvey. I mean, they, they'd uh, hang me in Montreal. So that was the beginning of, uh, and then Tommy Ivan, when he, when he came to manager, he, he knew talent and uh, he, he started to make some moves along with the farm system mm-hmm. uh, to bring in some decent players for Chicago. But uh, they were awful for a long yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, in the 45-46 season, Chicago, it was a 50-game season, and Chicago went 23-20-7. and And it wouldn't be until 1960, the 60-61 season, that they would finish over 500 again. I mean, it's crazy to think over 20 years between yeah, 500 yeah, seasons, yeah. but... That 58-59 season, they sure did come close. It was a 70-game season at this point. The Blackhawks win 28, lose 29, and tie 13. They finish third in the NHL, and they go up and they have to play the Montreal Canadiens in the semifinals or first round of the playoffs. And man, those playoffs were something else. Chicago, as I said, finally finishes in the top four and they're matched up against Montreal. Tell us about that series. I mean, there was so much to it. There was, there was a lot, a lot to the series, but Montreal was, was, uh, such a powerhouse at the time. I mean, their lineup, their lineup was an all-star lineup. I mean, uh, you were playing Montreal, you really had a hard time getting in that lineup because they were, they were just, I mean, they had the Richards, they had Bellable, they had Dickie Moore, they had all the, they had everything going, Jacques Plant and everything else. But the Blackhawks, uh, 
you know, they they came to play. They had, you know, they had Bobby and they had Stan Makita now, and uh, they had some pretty good centers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that. Well, they had Pierre and Moose in one pairing, and then uh, I can't recall if it was uh, Dolly Saint Laurent was uh, with playing with uh, one of the other guys. So uh, the Chicago is getting better, but they're still, you know, they're still. Uh, they're still not a Montreal Canadian team yet. No, but what they did but do... you, you got to learn from experience. Right. And the other thing they did do, they got their fans behind the team. I mean, more than 18,000 people showed up for Game 3. I mean, that must have been stunning to the Blackhawk players to skate out on the ice and see that many people sitting in the stands on home ice. And, you know, there, police had to be called in because... The the play uh, the fans were throwing garbage and whatever at the players and the refs. Um, someone even got into the stadium with a gun. Tell us about how uh, uh, you know about what the atmosphere was like and how the fans or why the fans finally turned out to see this team play. Uh, you know, I, I just I just related to the fact that they brought some caliber hockey to the town. Um, Having said that, we call it Madhouse in Madison for a reason. And and the, the the great story, and Pierre tells that story when it was Red Story's last game, uh, where where he got threatened mm. with a gun um, by by a fan, and they had to call the cops in and, and had the fan removed. And you know what? They didn't really remove the fan from the building. He just moved from a different <laughs> location. You, you find that hard to believe. They didn't take him away in chains. But... Uh, <laughs> There, there was they they would they would throw everything on the ice. I mean, um, there was no, and uh, that caused a lot of disruption. But back then, that they just come up with the scrapers and get it off the ice. Referees are under a lot of pressure, mm-hmm. um, and you know to cover those games. Red Story was a good referee, and uh, of course, the referees knew all the players as well. You know, there was only uh, so many referees. There's only six teams. You knew the players. You knew their capability, their maneuvers, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. but Pierre, at that point, seeing the fans turn out, seeing what hockey could really be like playing for a team that's making the playoffs, that really motivated him, didn't it? I mean, he finally was like, wow, this is something else. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is now, this is fun. This is fun. This is hockey is fun, you know, and, uh, and through the year, you know, and he would go up and down, you know, you'd win something, lose something. But you know what? Uh, once, you, once you get into your system, hey, we got to make the playoffs and uh, we got to take a run here. Um, and they had the talent. And they started going and they started winning awards. I mean, they had all-stars in their teams uh, from, from that point on. Again, like Bobby Hull and Stan Makita and uh, Glenn Hall, um, you know, first and second team all-stars. So they had a pretty good lineup, mm-hmm. pretty good, strong offense. Uh, and, and, you know, if you're a hockey fan, you're going to become a hockey fan when you see that kind of offense. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves scoring. Chicago was a scoring right. team. Right, and, and Pierre was also gaining a lot of confidence, not only in his game, but what he meant to the team off the ice as well. And he was finally learning the business side of the game, and he even stood his ground when it came to signing his next contract. Um, it wasn't easy, but 
you know, like you said, players would sign out of fear, but he finally stood his ground. So what kind of respect was he getting from management? Well, you know, it was a negotiating game, but he, he finally started having your, your chosen second all-star, first all-star. If you win a Norris, you, now you have some leverage to bargain against. Uh, you know, Chicago was starting to improve. What's Tom, what's Tommy Ivan going to do? Is he going to let Bobby Hull walk? Is he going to let Pierre walk and have the team, you know, start to tank a little bit? I don't think so. So they just played hardball as far as negotiation goes. But Pierre, you had to develop a nerve and say, I'm not signing for that. Mm-hmm. So when Pierre had a few of those uh, accolades under his belt, he says, no, I'm going to negotiate a little harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took nerve to do that. Um and and then Bobby pulls off the stuff where he just go right to the owner because Mister Norris liked it. <laughs> <laughs> he just go right over Tommy Ivan's head. Now Pierre would never do that. He would never. How do that. important was Pierre uh, to the turnaround of this team? I mean, nine of the previous eleven seasons they didn't make the playoffs, but in Pierre's final ten seasons with Chicago, they made the playoffs every year and they made it to the finals three times and they won the cup the one time. How important a player was Pierre Pilat to the once more bound franchise? He was the defenseman. And then I know they talk about Bobby Orris being the upstart rushing defenseman. Now, now that's not totally the case. Bobby was an extremely, uh, he really, really pushed it to a different level. But Pierre was an offensive uh, uh, defenseman as well. I mean, uh, Bobby Orr's scoring record surpassed Pierre's. Um, that's who he surpassed to, to gain the scoring record as a defenseman. Pierre was uh, Pierre was offensive minded as well. Uh, so he was he was moving it up. He wasn't the stay home defense. He was he changed the game a bit by by doing that. But he had he had the guys you know like he had Bobby up there and a few other guys that could go. So his his style of play helped change that as far as uh, the offense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you know he was in the, he was you can say he was in, taking those steps to change the way defensemen played. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and of course, he he would he learned how to block shots when he was at Buffalo. Uh, so you know he his defensive game wasn't um, wasn't lost just on offense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, talk talk about his you know how how he played defense. One of the things I did read and uh, in, in research was he 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 would get down on the ice and block the shots and. He was still also a quote unquote offensive defenseman, so he had a really good all around game. Yes, he, he learned. You know, first when he first started, he was a left shot, I, and they wanted to put Frank. Frank Edels taught him a lot, and you play the right side. Well, I'm a left shot, and he and he explained to him why he should play that side. So Pierre listened to him and bought into it 100. percent Okay. And Frank Adels taught him how to go down and block shots. So, like, Pierre was a student right from the word go. He seen somebody do something that he could pick up on, he would do that. He learned all these, I won't call them tricks, I just call them, uh, they were tricks of the trade, uh, you know, but he learned them. Uh, study them and use mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. And he learned a lot of it by watching, like you said earlier, his idol, I guess, Doug Harvey. 
He watched Doug Harvey. He watched several players and watched, well, there's a, isn't that an interesting move? I got to try that someday, you know? And when he first started playing with Whitey Stapleton, uh, Whitey wasn't familiar with the NHL style. And he said, no, no, when it's shot into your corner or my corner, you go get it because of the angles that the player was skating on. So he, you know, when Whitey, Whitey Stapleton came in the league, he was telling Whitey at certain things on how to play and where to play positional play as a defenseman and such, you know, and Whitey, Whitey Stapleton became a half decent, uh, offensive defenseman mm-hmm, as well, mm-hmm. you know, after Pierre left. Mm-hmm. Well, the Blackhawks, like we said, they made the, uh, uh, playoffs that first time around in 58, 59 with Pierre, they repeated almost identical the second, you know, the next season. The same exact record, 28 wins, 29 losses, 13 ties. They end up in third place, and they play the Canadians again in the semifinals. This time they're swept out. But then 1960-61, this team puts it all together. Sure, they finish in third place again during the regular season, but they're over 500. They win 29 games lose 24, and tie 17. This time, though, they think they've got a way to beat the Montreal Canadiens in the semifinals. And that was a rough, tough series. What can you tell us about it? And and then that's exactly part of the strategy they used because of the players they had. They had, they had some players that would... Uh, Go in and just uh, every chance you get, you 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 take the hit, you make the hit. And uh, I mean, Montreal still had a good goaltender. They still had Plantinet. They still had their guys. But but Chicago had some guys that were as rugged. And uh, let's face it, they had the million dollar line, they had the scooter line, and they had guys that were Reggie Fleming. Uh, they had um, Murray Balfour. They had some tough guys in their team, and so. They give Montreal every time they turned around. They were on them. They were on them. They learned to check a little bit that year. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't do it later on, but um, they learned to check really hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With the rule fans, that's how they took Montreal out. Matter of fact, Toe Blake complained about uh, you know their, their 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 maneuvers and how the referees weren't calling this and that. And uh, today. But in Chicago, uh, and of course, they had Glenn Hall. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, people people ask, uh, you know, Pierre, uh, Pierre will tell you that Glenn Hall was the best goalie. A lot of people say Terry Sajic was the best goalie. He says, no, best goalie I, the best goalie I had was Glenn Hall. He'd tell right, you they that. called him Mr. Goalie, too. That's right. He was, he was, he was, he was something else. So, and you need good you need good goal inning, Absolutely, as you know. even today uh, you do. I mean, that's how the Blues won the Stanley Cup last year. You know, Jordan Bennington. Yeah, you don't have good goaltending, you kiss it yep, goodbye. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, as much as Toe Blake complained and as rough and as tough as it was, the Canadians manned up at the end, and they actually went into Chicago's locker room, including Toe Blake, a couple of the players, and – they congratulate. They congratulated 
the Blackhawks for a great series and finally dethroning the vaunted Montreal Canadiens. The Canadiens respected them, didn't they? Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like Toe Blake, Toe Blake was a winner, but he knew that any team could be knocked off if you weren't on your game. Uh, he knew that. He found that out against Toronto as well, mm-hmm. that he knew that. Uh, and and, and Toe Blake was astute to know that, uh, you know, they did five in a row. Uh, they, you know, they changed their personnel a little bit. But then uh, when, when Chicago beat them, they started to move them. They started moving guys out of Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you know, Chicago had, a, I mean, guys from Detroit, when Chicago beat Detroit, the guys from Detroit dressing room came in and shook some hands. But I well. also read that that was, uh, they were also, Detroit was a little bitter afterwards. I mean, again, another rough and tough series, the Blackhawks overcome yeah, yeah. everything all uh, that's all leading up to this. And they beat the Detroit Red Wings to win the Stanley cup. And some of the players were bitter about that. They talked about how the league saved the Blackhawks by arranging to get them good players. They neglected to mention the fact that the Blackhawks signed great amateurs or, you know, drafted the great amateur players like Pallad and 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 Bobby Hull and Moose Vasco. Um Detroit was a little bitter that they lost the Stanley Cup championship to Chicago. Well, that that was that was Jack Adams because Jack Adams had been around for a long time. He's seen a lot of the stuff that went on with the Norris family, and and uh, some of the occurrences. Now, hey, Jack Adams created part of that because he's the guy that uh, uh, pissed off Glenn Hall and uh, traded Ted Lindsay. So you know, when he comes back with that comment, um, you know, uh, hey, don't ask, you you ask for it. And, this is what you got. Now, that you know when when Detroit made some trades with Chicago, and you look at some of the trades, there was never any spectacular um, donations given by Detroit, except if they made the mistake of giving away Glenn Hall. Ted Lindsay was at the longer end of his career, even though he was solid in the dressing room and good player, and etc. But uh, when they when they got rid of Glenn Hall, they made a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Glenn Hall was just a spectacular, solid, steady goalie. Hey, in this playoff of 60-61, how pivotal a role did Pierre play? He, well, Pierre had to, you know, uh, if you're going to win it, he, he uh, you know, you play hurt. You got to got a cut here. You got a bobo there. You play hurt. You, you got to give it 100%. And they, they gave it. They, they gave it because... It only comes around once in a while. Um, you know, I think I think to a man, uh, I mean, like you take Bobby Hull, he's being shadowed by every guy under the sun. He's got to fight through that because um, they do have to score some goals. And uh, anyway, they, they, they played through the toughest. And they, you know, they found out how tough it was to win a Stanley Cup, even if there's only four teams vying mm-hmm, for it. Mm-hmm. And the following season... You know, they improved their record again during the regular season, winning 31 games. But once again, they finished third in the regular season. And again, they take out Montreal in the semifinals. But this time, they lost in the Stanley Cup finals to the Toronto Maple Leafs four games to two. 
talk about that disappointment. This was this this didn't sit well with Pierre. No, this didn't sit well with Pierre because he he could sense that. Yes, the Blackhawks could uh, score. Uh, they they made some moves in the offseason. Even now, they won the Stanley Cup. They got rid of uh, four or five guys, and they you know they had a couple of newer guys come in. But uh, he was disappointed because uh, their style of play was um, not conducive to playoff hockey. Uh, he'd tell you that. He says, you know, we're we're too used to playing that offensive game, and uh, did have that other gear to switch into when it came to playoffs. You know, you had a bar the kitty door. You know, you had to tighten down, and uh, and Toronto Toronto used some pretty good techniques of they were clutch and grab. They'd uh, you know there was there was always questions whether Chicago made the rice muddy at times. Well, uh, Toronto doctored the rice as well. You know, to suit their hometown, there was there was all kinds of things like that as well. Um, you know, so. Yeah, uh, Pierre was very disappointed that the Chicago only won one standing mm-hmm. cup. They felt that uh, they probably should have won three mm-hmm. or four. Well, the next three seasons after that loss to Toronto in the finals, we're talking 62-63, 63-64, and 64-65. Pierre certainly established himself as the top defenseman in the league, he won the Norris Trophy three straight years. Talk about his game, how it absolutely took off, and and just how good a player Pierre became. And he did this, by the way, at the ages of 31, 32, and 33. But, again, he didn't pick up the game until he was in his teens. So as far as hockey years are concerned, he might have been a little younger. He might have been. But you know what? He, the fact that he was such a great student, now he was a, such a steady defenseman on both ends of the, of the ice and knew, knew how to play the game so well. Uh, of course, he's also now the, the captain of the team where he's, you know, he's taken on, I mean, the year after um, they won Blackhawks, uh, it's funny that, uh, you know, they, they couldn't give the captaincy to Bobby. They couldn't give it to Stan. And so it was Tommy Ivan and, and Rudy Pillis made the decision without anybody else. Pierre, you're a captain. It was, you're the captain of the team. So he had the added responsibility to show leadership, um, you know, on and off the ice to the team. And he did. Um Certainly, his his points kept increasing year after mm-hmm. year. Uh, you know, he wasn't he wasn't slacking off. So, and and you know, he had a lot of great great written reports about him. Uh, he must have been a likable guy to the the reporters as well, because uh, a lot of the guys were writing great articles. Red Fisher was is a, a great fan of Pierce. Red Fisher, who was a strong uh, Montreal writer for the Gazette, uh, just just loved Pierre. He said, you know, he was. He was fantastic. What he did, mm-hmm. you know, steady as a rock. But yet, but so, yet, some of the fans would turn on Pierre periodically, wouldn't they? There were once in a while there were some boo birds. Yeah, uh, you know, you make a mistake in Chicago, and uh, I mean, I don't think Bobby could ever get booed, but uh, you make a mistake in Chicago, and uh, you know, they're uh, they're not too forgiving. Uh, and uh, he might have got a, you know the odd booze somewhere else when he laid a check on somebody, um, 
you know, because he was still, even as an Norris Trophy winner, he's still laying out a few mm-hmm. guys. Mm-hmm. You know, in 65-66, the Blackhawks finally overcome finishing in third place, and they finish in second. Um, but, you know, they they lose in the semifinals to the Red Wings, and then 66-67 comes along, and the Chicago Blackhawks, to that point, put together one of the greatest seasons in the history of the NHL. They go 41 wins, 17 losses, 12 ties, 94 points. They score 262 goals. I mean, they're setting records all over the place. And this is the year for the first time in 40 years, they finish first and they break the curse of Muldoon. I want you to tell me about that. But again, like I said, they set so many single season records, but they lost in the first round to the Maple Leafs. This had to be one of the most gratifying regular seasons Pierre Palat ever experienced. But in the end, it was terribly disappointing. Talk about that 60-61 season. Big time. I mean, they had, they had, I think they had uh, four first-team uh, All-Stars and two second-team All-Stars. I mean, it was just an offensive juggernaut. Uh, you know, they were having their way with the league. Uh, they're, they're just flying. Everything's rolling along. Uh, now, the curse of Muldoon, uh, when, when Muldoon was coaching the Chicago Blackhawks many, many years prior to, he said, you guys will never win a, a league championship ever. You put the curse on them, but they broke the uh-huh. curse. And that was lots of talk about that. And the boys, the boys had won uh, first place with uh, several games to play. So they had a lot of room. But uh, again, I, I say that uh, we all talk about the Chicago strategizing about the goaltending with Toronto. And they, they didn't want to play against Bauer. And then Bauer got hurt. They wanted Sajic in there. Because they knew the Sochik was kind of uh, he was hurt as well. What happens? Johnny Johnny's hurt. He can't go. So they bring in Sochik. Well, Chicago thought, well, we got them now, man. And of course, Terry Sochik um, just come up uh, in the last two games and just stoned them out of the control. Even after Bobby Hall had taken, I think it was game five, he took a shot and put it right off Terry Sochik's shoulder, and they think he's not even getting up. You know, who are they going to put in net now? Because Johnny's mm-hmm. not well. Um, but he got up and he just stole them. He said, Pierre talked about that last game. He said, we couldn't, after Chicago went ahead, I think we got two shots on net in the third period. They just check, 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 held, grasped, everything. We couldn't move. Uh, that was a disappointing season for him. Probably, probably the biggest disappointment of all. You know, everything was progressing gradually, and they won 60-61. But he said that year, that year really hurt. And, of course, uh, after that, they made some dumb trades, so Chicago's never going to get back to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, hey, Waxy, you know, we, we, we started off talking about, and we've mentioned it a couple of times, how Pierre started the game late in life, and yet... Here he is winning the Norris Trophy three years in a row. How good was Pierre, and 
how good might he have been had he took up the game earlier? You know, that's 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 really hard to say, but uh, I would expect that uh, he, he was a runner-up in that fourth year as well. He lost to Jacques Laperriere, the Norris Trophy. But then he had he had acquired some injuries. But, you know, it's really hard to say if he would have been, um, you know, if he'd have started at uh, 10 years old. Who knows? Uh, because again, he was, he was, he picked up things so quick. He was a, uh, a real student. So who knows where would have, where he would have gone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I, I would assume that he'd been in the NHL uh, a lot sooner than he was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think of hockey's greatest defensemen, and I'm a hockey fan, and I know the name, or I knew the name, Pierre Palat, and obviously after doing all the research for this podcast, I know so much more about Pierre, and I would certainly consider him to be one of the greatest defensemen to have ever played the game. But before that, I think like many h- hockey people, hockey fans, when you think of hockey's greatest defensemen, you think of Bobby Orr, Denny Potvin, Doug Harvey, Ray Bork, even Paul Coffey. Not many would say Pierre Palat. Is he overlooked? Yeah, I, I would think he's overlooked. But, you know, that, that question is always taken. You know, when when did they play hockey? You know, uh, you know the game has changed so much in different eras. But back then, the original six, uh, certainly he was overlooked. Uh each team had some, um, you know, we only had four defense per team. So if you say, if you say there's 24 defense in the league, you're not talking about a whole lot of guys that, uh, could be to some hall of famers, certainly, but they're not, they're not the caliber of Pierre. So certainly he's overlooked at that time period. I mean, he was, let's face it, Bobby's a superstar. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't think he made the top 100. Now, that, that, there's a lot of players that have played the game, and again, you have to take it into context of uh, when they played. Do you think that that also could but, be uh, because he only won one Stanley Cup? Well, I I, I would hope not. There's some guys that have, uh, you know, Raymond Bork won one Stanley Cup, and he only won it because he got moved to yeah, Colorado. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Brad Park didn't win a Stanley nope. Cup. Uh, um, you know, and he was a good defenseman. Uh, I don't know, think they read him. I don't know if they read Brad Park higher than Pierre, but I mean, they put some new defensemen on that list of 100, and I didn't think that was right. But uh, uh, anyway, it's it's really hard. To, but I, I think yes. I mean, when he was a he's a Hall of Famer. He's got a sweater retired. Uh, is he a superstar? Uh, he's pretty mm-hmm. close. Mm-hmm. Why did the black? You know, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, you go ahead. I was going to say, ahead. why did the Blackhawks ultimately trade Pierre to the Maple Leafs? Uh, well, um, his age, I think, is one, and what they got back for him. Pierre will tell you that uh, Chicago made a good trade because they got a young Jim Pappen for a defenseman that was, uh, you know, past, uh, you know, his mid thirties. So he says that they made a decent trade. Um, Pierre is getting, uh, I don't know if they've seen size as well. Pierre, 
Pierre in his own mind, I think was, was, was starting to think out of the box as far as, and he did that once he got to Toronto, he started to lock into businesses. He already had a couple of businesses, uh, prior to, uh, leaving Chicago, we had a laundromat. He was in the car business and, uh, many people don't know that he even had a, a Tim Horton franchise for a, a short period of time. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, he kind of, you know, what are you going to do? He was upset with the trade. Yeah. Talk about uh, that. How upset that. he was about the trade and how he found out about the trade. How he found out the trade is he had a reporter call him to tell, you know, how do you feel about the trade? What are you talking about? Uh, you know, what are you talking about the trade? Well, you've been traded to Toronto. Well, I mean, you think that somebody in management would have held off reporting it to anybody and had called him in, but they, it wasn't the first guy they'd done that to. I mean, a lot of guys were treated like that. And it was a PR guy, uh, a PR guy from Chicago yeah. that ultimately made contact with him. Nobody from management. I mean, what this guy meant well, to the, the team. PR guy said, PR guy said, I, I've been trying to get a hold of you all day. He says, well, my wife's been here all day and the phone never rang. So the guy, the PR guy was, you know, give him a pile of crap as far as that went. I mean, now, uh, Pierre's, Pierre's one year in Toronto was not. Yeah, he good. didn't enjoy his time there. He never felt like he, 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 he fit in that they didn't even want him there. So, so it wasn't a good year. No, there was some undermining going on with some of the players. And, um, you know, Punch's teams were a lot different than Chicago. Uh, you know, the way they played, but there was some other mining. And, you know, uh, even to this day, uh, Pierre never trusted Bob Pulford. Um, back then, he felt that Bob Pulford was spying on him. And, of course, Bob Pulford became a, a very uh, instrumental in yeah. the when, uh, when, when when Bill Wirtz was running the squad. Uh, and uh, so he wasn't, he wasn't a, you know, Ball pull for mm-hmm. fan, mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Don't forget, it was years. was until years later before, uh, went, uh, until Rocky Words took over, where Pierre got invited back into the fold of Chicago, mm-hmm. part of the family. Mm-hmm. You know, so he had been away from Chicago for a long time, but he, his stay in Toronto was not very good. Um, he uh, he felt undermined by certain players, and I, you know, he felt maybe uh, maybe he rocked a few guys. Um, he certainly didn't have doesn't have a lot to say about Mike Walton. Mm-hmm. That's any mm-hmm. good, uh, you know. And he said he even played with Mike Walton's father. Anyway, uh, he uh, he had an offer to go uh, after. I'm not sure if we talked yeah about to the that Rangers. You 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 said that. Um, so he, so yeah. he retired from the game. He said I've had enough. But Emil Francis. Uh, the coach of the Rangers still saw something in Pierre and, you know, the Rangers were putting together a pretty good team at that point. And Emil Francis uh, uh, tried to talk him out of retirement and even, you know, threw some more money at him. But, you know, I guess Pierre had had enough. Yeah, he was actually, he was, he was going to send Pierre, he's going to sign Pierre to the minor league team, but he says, I'm going to just send you down there for a while and I'm going to call you up. And he had a four-year contract. Hmm. That was that was for four years. But uh, Pierre said, "No, um, I'm done. My heart's not in it." So he had a business. Mm-hmm. He had to purchase a luggage business, and he was. And as and as Pierre is, he focuses on, uh, you know, that's one thing he does. He focuses on his business. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, as a hockey player, he had given his full attention to hockey, and now he owns a luggage business. He would give his full attention to the luggage. Of course, he was still working for uh, Sears Roebuck. Um, I'm not sure if... Uh, yeah, but he, 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 you know. promoting their hockey equipment. What, well, That's where he became... Um, Real tight with uh, Fergie. Mm-hmm. Ferguson Jenkins, and he did something with Ted Williams too, I think. Ted Ted Williams was a fishing guy uh, as a representative for Sears Roebucks, and Pierre was a hockey guy, and uh, Jean Claude Keeley was a skiing guy, and Fergie Jenkins was the baseball guy. And what a uh, lineup! Pierre and Fergie used to go quite often on the uh, you know promoting the the the, the business, uh, and uh, Pierre Pierre used to. Uh, meet up with Ted Lindsay as well. Of course, Ted Ted uh, Ted Williams was a uh, adamant fisherman, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, actually, Fergie Jenkins loves fishing, and I know Pierre did some fishing. So I, I imagine they had a good time. I would time. imagine so. Hey, when we look back on the career of Pierre Pilat, what did he tell you that he was most proud of? Ah. Uh, I think it's uh, the stole little things that um, where you know he was able to uh, step up and better himself, and uh, you know gain a position on a team, you know by making the squad. All those little instrumental little steps to get him to where he was. He was really, uh, I mean, once he was selected for the Hockey Hall of Fame. He really took that responsibility. Like I, I think that once he he got there, that was a, you know, that tells you you're you're very successful in your your field of business. He really took the hockey hall of fame to heart. He uh, spent a lot of time when uh, any time that hockey hall of fame had a function to raise money, uh, you know, golf tournament or a hockey pool draft or. Ron Ellis would call him up and say, Pierre, we got a thing. Can you come down and give us a hand? Uh, they'd always have a celebrity with some guys who donated money. Pierre was r- there all the time. Didn't have to ask him twice. Uh, and he, and he, I think he really felt that that um, bonding with the Hockey Hall of Fame guys was the, the climax of his whole career. So I have to say that after seeing everything he'd done and how he spent uh, you know, his last year's involved with the Hockey Hall of Fame. He was really proud to be a member of the, the Hockey Hall of Fame. And then, of course, uh, when he when he got chosen uh, to be one of the top six D on the stamp collection with, with Bobby Orr, Doug Hardy, mm-hmm. Red Kelly as a, as a Red Wing, uh, Harry Howe as a New York Ranger, uh, and I was a sixth guy, uh, Tim Horton as a Maple Leaf. Those six guys were picked to be on the stamps. You know, another proud mm-hmm. moment. All Hall of Famers and such. Um, you know, he, he was really, um, I think that he really carried that pride on being a Hockey Hall of Famer because they had uh, events going on year after year after year. And he showed up to all Hockey Hall of Fame uh, inductions. You know, uh, every year they have them, he would show mm-hmm. up uh, to support other guys going in. Uh, so 
he was he was really proud of that. Now, what a career! I mean, you know, he played for thirteen plus years, and I say plus because his first year was only a twenty. You know, he only played twenty games, but in all of that time, do you know that only twice did he finish a season with a negative plus minus rating? I mean, just what an incredible career! So, to Absolutely. wrap it all up, Waxy, what? should we all know and remember about Pierre Pilat? We should, we should know, we should know that Pierre Pilat was a, was a really uh, common sense, great guy. Firstly, he was a team player uh, committed to team play team. Team was, team was uh, the name of the game. You know, he, he got, you know, he got some accolades. Yes, yes, yes. But, uh, the team was first and foremost, and and he got along with guys. And you know, and after he retired, you meet some guys, and he really got along with the guys after as well. When he retired, you know, he, uh, you know, he wasn't uh, standoffish or anything like that. Where some guys still mm-hmm. are, but but he wasn't. And he, he was, you know, he was a great human being mm-hmm. because there's more to life than just mm-hmm. hockey. And Pierre Pierre embedded himself in the community, and I'll tell you. He used to come to our, our sports hall of fame functions here in this little town of Penetanguishene, and everybody knew him. They didn't ask Pierre about, uh, can I have an autograph? They'd say, Pierre, how are your tomatoes? Are they growing this year? And, you know, he was, hmm. he was that just normal Joe Blow mm-hmm. guy, mm-hmm. but yet he's a hall of, he's a hockey hall of famer. That's awesome. That's kind of, that's awesome. Yeah. That's the kind of guy he was. He'd, he talked to you. He talked to anybody, you know, that's awesome. And he talked to you both. And here's an outstanding thing about Pierre. His autograph to this day is immaculate. There are certain guys like John Belleville, Johnny Bauer, uh, Ted Lindsay, Gordy Howe, Pierre Blot, outstanding autographs. And I was with him signing books. And the lineup was, you know how long the lineup sure. could be. He took the time. He took the time to sign every autograph the same way. Very legible, professional. And he'd get some of the autographs signed and he'd stop and he'd maybe do five or six because he might know his first getting maybe a little sore or whatever. And he'd talk to the, he'd talk to the customers, you know, how you doing? What's, and he'd talk about different things with them. He'd get them to talk about something. He'd be chatting with them. And it uh, didn't matter if there was 60 people in the lineup. And I'll tell you my story when I went to Chicago. Sure. So Pierre, Pierre says, uh, we're going to Chicago. We got an invite. I got to do some signing. You want to go down with me? I said, sure. The things that we met, you know, the people I met there was, were unbelievable. And we were, we were watching the game out of the, uh, ambassador's box. So there's Bobby Hull and there's Dennis Savard and there's, uh, Tony Esposito, but Pierre's signing that day. So he goes down, uh, after the first intermission to sign uh, so you figure he's just signing autographs in the first exhibition, uh, first intermediate. Well, I didn't see him for the second period. I didn't see him in the second intermission. I seen him when there was about five minutes left in the third period. I said, where have you been? He said, well, I was signing. <laughs> he says, are you telling me that the lineup had never stopped? He says, no. And he signed everybody's, uh, autograph. Awesome. Uh, he never seen any of the games. That's awesome. <laughs> Never seen any of the game. Uh, you know, that's, that's just, you know, he says, Hey, that's show business. You got to do that. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing that, uh, yeah, he's just like uh, you and I, buddy, just Joe blow, 
but he's a Hall of Famer. That's Hammer. awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. Oh, yeah. Great, great guy. I miss him. He's uh, been gone now. I used to spend a lot of time with him um, because he was so, so close by. I would spend a lot of time with him just uh, talking about whatever. Uh-huh. It wouldn't even, be, wouldn't even be about hockey. We'd be talking about tomatoes. We'd be talking about this. That's uh, awesome. Those are yeah. the those are the kind of guys you you really wanna you respect you wanna hang with and you like and you could call them a real friend. Oh, and and joke around uh, and uh, you know and and his wife passed away before him, but she was a beauty. She was such a lovely person. You know, you, you get together with them and uh, they they were so much uh, just down to earth people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, what are you working on now? Anything? Well, I, I did. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but I did a, a, a book with Brian Trottier, <laughs> and uh, they've, they've had they've had the material for almost a year now, and they still haven't published the hmm. book. And I want to tell you what a great story. Yeah, and another another uh, good guy uh, down earth and. One hell of a hockey. Oh, player. no doubt. One of the one of the greatest. What he meant to the Islanders, that great line of Trottier, Gillies, and Bossy, you know, that is one of the greatest lines in the history of the game. And if you want to, uh, I'm hoping that they do something with that damn book pretty soon. But his his upbringing, because he he grew up out west, you know, a south portion of Saskatchewan, and that's a whole different life to us guys in the east. Mm-hmm. And what a story. Mm-hmm. What a story. You know, cowboy. You talk about a story, a kid growing up. Man, well, man. maybe we'll have to do anyway. something about that. Yeah, well, when it comes out, uh, absolutely. All right, well, you... I, I think you're going to really en- enjoy the story. It's, you know, it's on the same lines as the Red Kelly and the Pierre Palat. It's just... Uh, and he had he had other ice, uh, aspects to the game because uh, not only did he win uh, six Stanley Cups as a player and one as a coach, or assistant coach, but he was also president of the Players Association for a long time. And that's an interesting component. Oh, well, I'm sure it is. Well, I am looking forward to talking to you about that and 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 whatever else we could we could dig up. Waxy, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. This has been terrific. Yeah, anytime, my friend. Pierre certainly enjoyed a wonderful career in the NHL. One of his coolest stats, I think, is this. The NHL started keeping track of plus-minus in the 1959-1960 season. So, that stat was noted in each of Pierre's final 10 seasons. Only twice did he end a season minus. In fact, twice he led the NHL. In 1963-64, he was a plus 31, and in 1966-67, he was a plus 54. (laughs) Not bad for a defenseman. In the playoffs, the year the Blackhawks won the Cup, 1961, he led all scorers with 12 assists, 15 points, and a plus 11. Pierre Palat was... 
Well, simply stated, one of the best to ever play the game, and I'm thrilled we had the chance to talk about him with Waxy, who, by the way, is really a terrific writer, and I encourage you to pick up his newest book about the great New York Islander and Pittsburgh Penguin, Brian Trottier, when it comes out, or his book on Red Kelly, or the book Heart of the Blackhawks, which details the career of the great Pierre Pallott. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, baseball is back. Yep, spring training is underway, and I thought we'd head out to the Diamond for a little baseball talk with author Jeremy Beer for a conversation about a player who many think just might be the second greatest to ever play the game right behind Babe Ruth. We're talking Oscar Charleston. That's next time. For now, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.